If you will, turn with me to John 6. We're going to go 16 through 21. Um, As you're turning there, when I was a sophomore in high school, I played ice hockey, and there was one day I was, I was going, and I was, actually had a breakaway. This was the first time ever. Um, had this breakaway going towards the goal, got tripped up, went headfirst into the boards, and just was, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I was out. Um, I just don't remember much. And so I laid there, came back home. I had a massive headache. My back was hurting. Sophomore in high school, so I was 15 years old. Um, my mom's a nurse. She goes, dude, just go take some Advil. Everything will be better. So I went up there. And I kind of looked at the bottle for a little bit, popped it open, and um, I thought, well, for a headache, I take three, and I have two things wrong with me, so six. And so I popped the six, popped them in my mouth, just went down, watched TV. Um, no big deal. My mom later, it was about four hours later, I'm going, okay, I need some more something because it's hurting. And she goes, well, how many did you take? I said, well, six. She goes, that, no, you can't, do, you can't do that. I'm like, but no, I had two things wrong with me. <laughs> And so she goes, that's, that's not how medicine works. <laughs> like, that's not. And I go, no, of course. In my mind, I had this, like, it hurts here. So you take the medicine. The medicine travels down. Your body's smart enough to send it down to that area. And then there's this awesome fight that takes place in your knee or your back or your head. And the medicine's battling the pain. And then it fixes it. And so if I have to put on this fight with these two different things, I've got to deploy a lot more. And she goes, not exactly how it works. It kind of just goes to your brain and tells you to quit hurting. I'm like, wow, (laughs) like this eye-opening experience on what medicine does for you and how it works and how it operates. And when I jumped into this passage and read it immediately, I started going, okay, how can we see this passage of Jesus walking on water, fix our souls and the mission and, and, and what does this look like? And then I realized most of us view miracles like I view medicine. I didn't really know how it worked. I didn't really understand the depth of it. So what I want to do is break into kind of two different talks today. And the first part is going to be an overview, kind of 30,000 foot view of miracles and how we look at them and how atheists look at them and how liberal Christianity looks at them and then a, a biblical perception of them. And then we'll move over just into the passage. So I'm going to read this um, and then we'll pray and then we'll jump in. When evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. They had rowed about three or four miles. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, um, we just thank you for your word and for speaking to us, and that every time, even though it's a story that I feel like we've read over and over and we've heard talked, and even for people that are coming in for the first time, and this is the first time they've even heard these words, that, that you have a fresh, new, absolute picture for us. And that every time, everybody's on the same playing field because we're hearing you speak new today. Father, I pray that your voice is the loudest in the room. And I pray that we don't simply have an information exchange, but our souls are changed. That it launches us into mission. It moves us into obedience. 
Because the last thing we need today, God, is more information about you. We need to meet you. We need to see you. We need to fall in love with you. We need the songs that we just sang for our souls to say, I believe that. I feel it. I see it. We love you, God. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to start with this overview of what is a miracle. So I want to kind of take liberal Christianity and atheists and kind of how do they perceive miracles? How do they take miracles? How do they understand miracles? And there's kind of four ways in which they will take a miracle. One, it's a metaphor. They just think that Jesus used this, and he kind of talked about it, and it's in the Bible, but we've got to pull out a metaphor and kind of understand more the grounding. It's more teaching us about who he is, and it didn't actually happen. And so we see this metaphor becomes even bigger and bigger and bigger as the time goes on, and that's the next one, is that myths happen. And they say it really didn't, the story was a little bit skewed, a little bit different, a little, there was some weirdness going on, they won't really say all that happened, but because the story was passed down orally until about, you know, the 60s and 70s when it was written down, they believed that it became a myth. I mean, you definitely want a God that walks on water and changes water into wine and heals sick people and And so it just became bigger and bigger and bigger, and the stories just grew and grew and grew. And this fits, if you look at any other stories in that time, they had these massive stories that just grew and grew and grew, and they finally got written down, and now we read them, and they're called the classics, and we go through all this stuff because the stories grew. And so it fits that this is what happened there as well. The third thing is that maybe the disciples were just deceived, Maybe they wrote this, but they didn't really understand. I mean, in this story, one of the things that came out, they they said, well, in the Sea of Galilee, there's been, like, you know, amazing researchers that have gone in and said, maybe sand just kind of, he was standing on sand. So the miracle now is that he swam in the water, jumped up and got completely dry, and then stood on the sand and just kind of hung out, apparently, is how they take. Or he found a log. Which is even, I want to believe in that Jesus. He was like just sitting on a log right there by the boat. Like that's even a more miraculous. Like let's put that one in the Bible because I'm more fascinated by Jesus who walked on a log in the Galilee than just walking on the water. The fourth one, this is interesting because I think this is maybe our hearts and our souls a little bit. It was a spiritual issue, not physical. So all of these that happened, it was more, so this has more to do with the healings, um, when somebody was sick. They say that it was more, kind of, more psychological issues. So the hurt, the pain, they they were in this place because more of spiritual issues. It wasn't really physical pain. It wasn't really physical issues. They weren't really paralyzed. It was, spiritually, they were messed up. And as soon as they fixed the spiritual things, then the physical got fixed. Now, we seem to listen to this. If you're any kind of conservative Christian looking at this, we look at these and we go, those are ridiculous. I mean, we've got to believe that, except for usually practically we fall into all of these. We kind of fall into all of these. Metaphor, whenever something happens, we begin to always ask, what is God teaching me? Something happens in your life and and you're more trying to find the bigger picture, the bigger teaching, the bigger understanding, rather than just going, who is this God? Who is it? Who is he? What's he doing? The second thing is that too often um, we 
Have you ever seen a, just a miraculous, amazing thing happen, and we just feel like we got deceived in it? This happens all the time with somebody who has cancer. The doctors look at it. They look at the scans. They say cancer's all over her body. They go back in. They test, and they go, cancer's gone. I mean, they're like, doctor may have just read that wrong. I mean, it, just, it, it was probably just a cloudy scan. It was probably just a bad machine. It was, you know, the doctor, maybe they got them switched. Maybe, I mean, and we begin to just rationalize it out rather than go, maybe God is still healing people. Maybe he's miraculously doing things among us. The third one is spiritual, it's not physical. And this happens all the time. With, with well-intended Christians, we usually find somebody who's like, well, let's, let's work on you to get to the spiritual. You need to repent, and maybe all the other issues will begin to work themselves out. You're spiritually sick, so it's manifesting itself in the physically sick. And here's um, most Christians and how they respond to this. We kind of have three guys. Three guys. One is over-the-top Oliver. We all know this guy everything's a miracle. You know, like he goes in and he goes, hey, I'm going to, he orders the sandwich, just the regular old sandwich, doesn't tell me anything special, and comes back, it's like, there's no tomatoes on it. I didn't even tell him. I didn't even tell him no tomatoes. Like God just, you know, and then he goes to the next, it's like everything's a miracle. It just drives you nuts. And, it just, and, and that person's then talking to non-believers, and non-believers are like, oh, okay, like now, I'm struggling with Jesus, and now you're telling me he took your tomatoes off your sandwich. And I'm wondering why he allowed my son to die. And, and so we got this over-the-top Oliver that all of us know makes everything out to be a crazy miracle. The second person is Logical Larry. This guy can find a scientific reason for everything that exists. He's the one when you go... The doctor showed me the scan, and now, now it doesn't have cancer. And he's like, well, let me, there's six or seven. This happens all the time. There's been 243 cases of this throughout the U.S. With the, and it's just like statistic after statistic of how this didn't happen. And then there's absent Andy, which he might as well be a practical atheist. Because he um, says he believes in miracles, but he never prays for them. He never thinks that they're actually going to occur. He never hopes for it in his city. He never hopes for it in his family. He never looks for it anywhere. He says they occur, but he never prays for it. Because we don't, usually absent Andy doesn't want to be the guy that looks ridiculous praying for something that doesn't happen. You don't want to be the guy that's like, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that this cancer gets removed. I'm going to pray that this gets taken away. And then it doesn't happen. And now you're left to try to answer for God. And so what we do is just kind of choose to be absent Andy and not have to work on, work through a practical thing. The fourth one is who I'm going to talk just about, Truth Tommy. And this is a guy that absolutely understands what's going on. He has a deep sense. So when miracles begin to happen, he has a deep sense of awe of what happened. But he also knows that that's what God does. It's like he's deeply in awe of it, but he's not shocked by it because that's the character of God. We'll take it this way. It's like the, guy, the kid who desperately wants his dad to come to, an absent dad, wants his dad to come to the t-ball game, never shows up. 
And then when he finally does show up, it's like, my dad came, and going crazy, and he's telling all his teammates and all this kind of stuff. And all of his teammates are like, my dad's here all the time. And we're like that little bitty kid that's just, he finally had a miracle. He finally did something. My dad finally showed up. And it's going, true time just goes, my dad, he's always healing. He's always redeeming. He's always fixing. He wasn't gone. And he has this understanding of exactly what Tim Keller says here. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of what, is going to, what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. And so what I love is beginning to see this and what it, what it makes this unbelievable understanding is that whatever your struggle is that you're praying for a miracle in right now, if God chooses not to do it, he's ultimately healing in the end. He's ultimately redeeming that in the end. If God chooses to step in and heal, then what he's doing is just going, here's a foretaste of what's coming. The cancer may not even be in her body, but later on, she's going to be free of everything. She's going to be healed of everything. She's going to be redeemed of all pain, all worry, all stress. And so it's this amazing foretaste of what's to come. And so I want to preface that. I want to use that intro um, to launch us into this passage where we understand the depth of miracles. Very huge, very big um, if you have questions about miracles, uh, email Russell, and he like, will answer all of them. Um, good luck. Um, so all of that stuff. But now I want to move into the passage, because I think without understanding miracles, we're not going to understand this passage and the beauty of it. So I'm going to read it again, and then we'll kind of just plug our way through it. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So one of the beauties of Scripture that we can kind of do is I'm going to give a little bit more color to this passage by also moving over to Mark 6, 45 through 48. And you don't have to go there in your Bible, but it's the same passage, but it's just going to give us more information. And so what you have here is Mark giving this really detailed description of what on. John was trying to get to the main point of what went on, so he didn't get into all the details, but the details will help clarify some huge, big Things. So in Mark, when he tells the story, he says that Jesus went over, sent the disciples out on the boat, then he went up a mountain and began to pray. So he's up there on this mountain, he's praying, and he sends his disciples off, and he can see them. I love this image where he goes up on the mountain, he sends them out on the boat, and then he's just going to watch this whole thing exist. 
And so he begins to watch, and he sends them out into the water, and they start rowing across the sea. And he begins to see them kind of struggle. The Sea of Galilee was known for these just immediate kind of out of nowhere storms that just kind of took place and began to make things hard. These strong winds that would just make it really difficult to row. At first, I'm sitting there looking at this going, this is a hilarious, funny, mean Jesus. Like, hey, go, I'm going to go up here and just watch you. Like, I'm just going to watch you struggle. And we see Jesus going up there, watching them struggle, watching them row, watching them just really, and they're going against the wind, rowing as hard as you can. I can only imagine the conversations that are, you know, taking place going, do y'all see him? He's just chilling up there, isn't he? Like, and we're just busting it down here, and he's chilling. And he begins to watch them. They begin to row harder. They begin to, I just want to take a side note. Isn't this fascinating that this is kind of a microcosm of what the gospel means? Is that you have Jesus watching you, seeing you. You might be struggling, you might be hurting, you might be straining, you might be in turmoil, but you're never in danger. He's, he's watching you, he's seeing this, he's, he's understanding this struggle, but you're never in danger because he sees you. I, I have a feeling, and I made a joke about it earlier, but I have a feeling that the disciples didn't see him up there. The disciples didn't know he was watching. They're just going, okay, we're on our own. We got this. We got to, you know, we've done this before. We're fishermen. We understand how this goes. We understand what happens in this water. We understand what this is like. We've done this a million times. Doesn't make it easier, but means we know what we're doing. So let's get after it. And so he begins to watch them. He begins to see them struggle. Now, it, it would help us to understand that in, in those days, the ancients understood the storm, a storm and the sea and all of this to kind of represent some different things. They understood the sea um, was a symbol that life in the world are filled with uncontrollable powers. Now, this happens on land. I mean, you see this on land where a, an earthquake, I just moved here from San Francisco and I kept on waiting for an earthquake. I, I was fascinated by him. Everybody else was scared. Um, because I had never been in one, and I kept on waiting for just all of a sudden, everything that happened, I, is that an earthquake? No, you just woke up. Like, you know, and it's like just anything that happened, I tried to make it out to be. And I know that these things happen these, in the earth, but in the sea, it's even more so. In, in the sea, it's even more so. And so they understood, they, they just kind of viewed the sea, that it was just this uncontrollable power of life and the world are filled with this. And then it also shows that there's powers beyond our control and comprehension. There, there's powers beyond that. And there's times in your life, and I want to free some of you up from this, and then some of us that are also kind of talking about and to and for people, there's sometimes things are pushing on your life that you didn't cause, you didn't create. They're uncontrollable. Doesn't mean you don't have to deal with them doesn't mean there's not a godly way to handle it, but quit trying to always find the reason. Quit trying to always pinpoint where did I sin, where did I mess up, where did I just realize this may be an uncontrollable power just pushing on in your life. And I, I just want to free us up from that because I feel like I've talked to so many people that when when bad junk just starts happening in their life. It's always, and, and the good-minded Christians like, well, what do you need to repent of? And you're, 
I don't, I don't think this, I, I, I'm not that I don't need to repent, not that that's not, but I don't think that I did something which caused this, which created this. Sometimes, and that's what the sea represents. Could you imagine how ridiculous it would be that they're rowing and the wind picks up just like it normally does and it's getting hard and they're rowing hard and they're sweating and all of a sudden they're like, who, Peter, repent, somebody step up, say something. I mean, you said, I heard what you said. Like, you need to repent of that, and the sea's going to fix itself. I mean, it's just, they're going, no, this is, this is life. This is what it is. This is what happens when this begins to pick up. Keep on going in this passage. It says, they got in a boat. They started across the sea. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles... When they wrote about Jesus let them row three or four more miles. For those of y'all that have been in the struggle for a year, he may let you row three or four more years. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Doesn't mean he doesn't desire your affections. It means something, and we'll get into it here in a little bit. It means something bigger, but I want to, maybe scare some of y'all that just stepped into it and you're like, oh gosh, this could go on longer. But I want to relieve some of y'all that are going, does he hate me? Did he give up? Did he just quit? Is he not here? Is he not caring? Is he not compassionate? Is he not running in? I mean, what's going on? Did he abandon me? Am, Am I Jesus on the cross looking at God going, why did you forsaken me? And I want to free your soul up to go, he may let you row three or four more miles. He may see the pain. He may see the struggle and let you wrestle. But then when he's seeing them, he comes to them on land. So he walks out there. He walks out there. He sees them. He's now, and in Mark, it says something fascinating. It says that he was passing them by, which I think is even more funny. Like, you're sitting there rowing, and Jesus is like, what's up? <laughs> I mean, just, you're going, Sir, no, what are you doing? It's a race. You know, we're trying to get to the end, and I'm Jesus, so good luck. Um, I just, it's like, I'm trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. But then, here is what, to me, makes this whole picture, this whole image, this whole understanding even bigger. When did the disciples become frightened? Look in the passage with me, and we're going to see when the disciples became frightened. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Not frightened yet. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. They're not scared of the dark. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Still not frightened. When they had rowed about three or four miles, still not frightened. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Then they're freaking out. They're not scared of the storm. They're not scared of the sea. It's, it's commonplace for them. They know how to deal with it. They, they have tactics. They've talked about it. How to, you know, when a storm comes up, you get on this side and you ride this way and you just hold back and then only the right side and only the left side rows. And, and they have strategies for this. They know how to handle it. They know how to take on a big issue, a big problem, because it's just commonplace for them. But then all of a sudden, 
Jesus begins to walk near the boat and they lose it. So I, I, re- I went, this is fascinating to me. As somebody who we always sell people on, when you see Jesus, you're going to be amazed. Instead of when you see Jesus, you're going to just lose it. I mean, you'll be frightened. You'll be, and so now we're like, hey, come on Sunday morning to gathering. You're going to meet Jesus and you're just going to be scared. Like, I mean, it's just not, what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, the only way we understand this is to understand the nature of storms. The nature of storms are when two opposites collide. Two opposites collide. You have cold air and hot air. When they collide, you have a storm. You have low pressure and high pressure. When two opposites collide, you have a storm. So what happened is you have two opposites colliding with their soul and with the holiness of Jesus colliding. And for the first time, people that could understand everything and fix everything and kind of use scientific approach to everything and understand all of this stuff, they see Jesus walking on the water and they lose it because once again, this guy has just wrecked their soul with going, I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge of this. I got this. You're straining, you're freaking out, you're going through all this and and here I'm, in control of all the powers, of all the darkness, of all of this stuff. Jesus walking on the water says, I've got all this. What the sea represents, this hurt, this pain, this struggle, this torment, I've got this. And so what this reveals is that there's actually a deeper storm in their soul than there is out on the sea. There's a deeper storm out in their hearts and in their minds and in their soul than there ever was on See, this is why the four people that we talked about earlier usually answer the passages the way they do. They don't want to address the storm in their soul. So it's easier to look at Jesus walking on water and say, well, he was probably hanging out on a log. He was probably walking on a sandbar somehow. They probably just didn't see it. If it was a storm, it would have been kind of rainy and nasty and they really couldn't see what was going on. Well, it's probably a myth. It probably just was passed down because they don't want to deal with the storm in their soul colliding against a holy, amazing God. And so we come up with every possible reason to ignore it. We come up with every possible reason to excuse it. We come up with every possible way to say, no, that can't be true. And the, pro- the, the one that's most evident, I think, is saying, well, that happened in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen today. That happened in the New Testament. It doesn't happen today. That happened in the Bible times. It doesn't, doesn't happen. Jesus didn't steal doing these amazing miracles. And that way, we can kind of put it away, and we don't really have to answer for God, and we don't really have to answer any of this stuff. And we allow the storm in our soul to not have to be dealt with. What I love is when he walks up, and they're frightened. They're, I mean, they're just, they're just losing it. They're on this, they're rowing, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're sweating. They see Jesus trying to, you know, pass them up. And all of a sudden, they're just, everything in them erupts. And they're going, who is this guy again? What does he keep, why does he keep doing things that he shouldn't be doing? Why does he keep doing things that I'm not understanding? Why does he keep making all of this happen? And their soul is now questioning and wrestling and asking all these questions. So it makes sense now that he answers the way he does. 
He answered them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Another way to translate, he says, I am. He comes up and answers the exact answer of Moses in the burning, I am. I am what? I mean, what he's not saying is I was or I will be. I am, right? In the midst of your struggle, in the three or four miles that you are going to be rowing, I am. And a lot of Christians want to say, in the end, he will be. Like, just once you get through it, no, I am. you're okay right now. You're okay in the midst of the struggle. Doesn't make it any more fun. Doesn't make it easy. Doesn't make it to where you're like, I can't wait for the next one. But it just means right now in the midst of your struggle, he is. He is true. He is real. He is in control. He is watching you. He may let you struggle, but he still is. He goes on to say, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. So this whole story unfolds where they're on the boat, they're kind of in this wreckage, this whole massive storm. They see Jesus trying to pass them by. They just erupt in fear, and he says, I am, and they let him into the boat. So at some point in there, the storm collided, the storm, and they said, you are in control. Because if they don't see him as I am, I'm using those oars and just batting out this guy that's trying to get in my boat. You're not getting in this boat if you're crazy. But if you're God, if you're Lord, if you're, I'm going to let you into my boat. I'm going to let you into my life. I'm going to let you control us. And then all of a sudden, they're at the end of the lake. And there's different interpretations of this. Some say it was a miracle. That's the rest of the miracle. All of a sudden it's like, you know, and dropped them in. Some people just go, and the struggle and the turmoil revealed to them this, all of a sudden they realize, oh, we're at the end. When you see who Jesus is, you're at the end. You see the beauty of it. You're no longer struggling in turmoil. It's this beautiful picture it this one i read it i don't know how many times i've heard this story i've read this story as a kid we put it up on a felt board you know i mean i think even in seminary we had to i don't know why we spent like fifteen hundred dollars on this class but we had this clay and she she was teaching us about children's ministry she's like make a boat make a boat you know and so she was doing it quickly and we're making a boat put jesus in it and we're like no he's not supposed to be in it yet you know and we're like talking this whole story and it's like make it wake you know and so we're going through and i mean this whole story but it never hit me this is what this is why people need to go to seminary you learn all kinds of amazing theological truths of clay um so this huge in-depth understanding of this whole boat and all. And I never read it until I was sitting in and just continued to read this passage, continued to read this passage. And all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, they're frightened at a very different time than I've ever said they were. And then I realized that I read it that way because I probably have a storm in my own soul who doesn't want to wrestle with the truth inside of me. I'd rather wrestle with scientific things. I'd rather wrestle with mythological, with, quite, with, with everything else out there. I'd rather wrestle with, is this passage true and all that, rather than, why does my soul war against this Jesus? Why do I fight this Jesus? So I want to ask you a little bit today, is what is the storm in your soul? Like some of you... If you're like me, I love control. 
I love it. I, I like have to, I go to a counselor every two weeks and all, every, I don't know why I pay him either. Cause every time he goes, you're a control freak. And then I leave and then I come back two weeks later and he goes, well, you're still one. And I come back. And so, and we get in these fights cause I'm like, well, how do I fix this? He goes, that's what control freaks ask. And I'm like, well, so I'm seeing an amazing, um, pattern where he gets my money and this whole concept. But I know that I am a control freak and I, I, I I never release it. I don't want to release it. And I I see me warring with who God is. Some of us, the war inside of us is we care more that our kids behave better than that they look like Jesus. We care more about how the world sees them. Like, you have really good kids. It's like, yay. You know, or we kind of say, well, yeah, you're not around them all the time, which is a cop-out answer. Um, But the truth is, like, we're trying to make them more like Jesus. Like, when is the last time somebody came up to you and went, I feel like your son is, is beginning to look more like Jesus. We have a war inside of us because we want them to be good humans. We don't really want them to be disciples. And when we look at what Jesus wants for our kids, we have this war inside of us. Some of us continue to want to climb the corporate, and, and we keep on wanting that power, more and more power, more and more of that. Like, I just want to have more control of this. And, and there's this war in us going, it's his. There's a war inside of some of us, a storm inside of some of us whenever we look at our bank account, and God calls us to be generous. And we're pushed up against, well, I got this, I, I mean... You know, I know you know everything, God, but you, you can't hack into Wells Fargo banking system because my finances are a wreck. And so then we make ultimatums and we, we come up with all these different excuses by saying, well, God, whenever we pay school off, I'm going to be crazy generous because I'm going to have like 700 more a month and I'll give you 0% of that. And so like, I'll just be unbelievable with it as soon as we pay that off. And we don't see that we have this massive storm. And then let's just be honest, there's a lot of us in here who have a storm because we really don't believe Jesus is who he is. We, we love the fictional, he's a good guy, he's a good teacher, he's a good Gandhi-ish kind of individual. He enlightens me, but he doesn't ever do anything to my soul. He doesn't ever transform my soul. And so, I want to kind of finish with this is the question we're left is what storm is going in in your soul right now? And all of us have one. It may just be hidden. It may be different. It may look different. I just honestly confess mine and I did it with a joke, which is again, how I make it where it's not a big deal. Um, is that I struggle with control. It's, it's a storm that in every area of my life rages war. And I hate it. And, and the problem is, is that it comes, I, I can find every reason to say that it's not bad. I, I can come up with, well, if I'm not in control of my finances, then I'm like that one guy who has no, you know, every time he's asking, he just, his, well, if I'm, I've got to control my calendar because if not, I'm like Jim over there who shows up 30 minutes late to everything. I'm not going to be that. You're going to call, hey, you're coming. Oh, I forgot again. You're like, oh, here we go. Here's Jim. Like, I, I can't be that guy. And I can find every reason instead of just going, I like to be in control and it's an issue. And I need, it's, a, it's a storm that Jesus wants to 
wants me to let him in my boat and just go, let me, let me, let me row with you a while. It's not going to work out immediately. Let's row for a while. So the question is, your soul, do miracles show your soul who God is and what's the natural order? Do miracles reveal in your soul who he is? What, it, what it's really supposed to be like, what the world's really supposed to be like. In Genesis 1, and here's what I have to constantly go to with the control thing. Genesis 1, you realize that God gave Adam the calling to work before sin entered. We think like working is like, oh my gosh, you know, the curse, I have to work. No, work was there before. Like we were called to work. So there's called to do things, but he trusted God. He trusted that he was enough. So I have to constantly go, what is the natural order? The second thing, and this is for all of us, is what does this do for our mission? What does this do for near town groups? What's it do for your home groups? What's it do in our mission, in our city? Is that I want, I, I plead with you to realize this. When we're bumping up against a de-churched, unchurched, lost culture, we're not simply trying to give them inf- more information about Jesus. We're showing them that there's a storm in their soul. That takes listening. That takes relationship. That takes a massive amount of time. That's not a simple information exchange. You're not going to, I mean, can you, this realness of going up to somebody and going, there's a, there's a huge storm in your soul. We got to deal with it. And you go, but Jesus is enough. If you want to, you know, raise your hand if you want to know Christ. I mean, it's like really quickly, it's like, wait, wait, we just told them that there's a war waging in their soul. And so I just see the beauty of this. One of the things that we do in why I told you um, what we do with our disciple-making movements is we ask questions, what does this passage say about God? What's this passage say about man and how do we obey it? That's, that's all we do. So simply we say this passage says that God's in control. He is still performing miracles. He may let you turmoil. He may let you struggle. What's it say about man? You have a massive storm in your soul that you need to reckon out, you need to work with, you need to think through. And how do we obey it? We let Jesus in our boat. I'm going to leave that really open-ended. And then, how do we make this our mission? How do we obey it? So we realize that this week when we go out, we're now talking with people who have a massive storm in their soul. So it's understandable that they may not want to talk to you about Jesus. But you can love them and care for them, and eventually they're going to let you in to their story. We're going to pray. And then they're going to come up and lead us in communion. And here's what I want during this time. I mean, we're going to sing. We're going to do communion. We're going to respond. And all I want you to do is just ask that question, what's the war in my soul? What's the storm in my soul? What's going on? Where, where do I need to wrestle with this? And then ask the question, how can I be obedient? And how can I allow God to use this when I move into my world, when I move in with my coworkers? to realize what they're going through.